0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today we're talking to James Patterson who is a Liberal Senator for Victoria and he's the Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Thank you for joining us on Afternoon Light Podcast, James.
1: Thank you for having me, Georgina. It's great to be here at the Men's Institute.
0: Uh, it's great to have you and uh, I was thrilled to show you around our beautiful exhibition space and, and all we've been able to accomplish in exactly a year, in two days, is our one year anniversary of being incorporated. So it,
1: It's amazing what you've been able to achieve in such a short time and it's, as you know, so overdue. It's so great yeah. to see um, Robert Menzies' life and achievements being recognised and celebrated as it should be.
0: Yeah, and here on campus too at his alma mater and yours and mine. That's right. (laughs) We're all very happy here. Uh, Happy to be back. Um, James, I wanted to uh, start our discussion today by asking if you could paint a picture of the geopolitical environment that Australia faces and... uh, which obviously must come up day to day in your committee work. Mm. Um, but you've, you've recently been to London, New York, and DC talking with our AUKUS partners. So you no doubt have some fascinating insights from those mm. discussions too about, about what Australia's facing.
1: The, the Prime Minister's used the phrase to explain our new found strategic environment that we're living in the most uncertain times since the 1930s. And that's not just a global story, which we've all seen in Ukraine, the largest ground war in Europe since World War II, but it's a regional story as well, and it's principally been driven by the changing posture of China towards the world and particularly its own backyard. Uh, we've seen how it has militarized uh, disputed features in the South China Sea, how it has abrogated the freedoms of the people of Hong Kong, and its crackdown at home on on Uyghurs and other dissidents. But we've also seen the way which it's changed its posture towards Australia. A, a decade ago, Australia and China had what was really a, a arrangement of convenience, a, a mutually beneficial official relationship uh, where it was based on a transactional trading relationship and that has changed uh, to what really we see today is much more of a clash of systems where uh, the Chinese system is trying to coerce the Australian system, it doesn't respect us as an individual sovereign liberal democracy and it thinks that it can use its trade with us as a tool of leverage or coercion to uh, require us to make changes to our domestic public policy settings. And The clearest evidence we have of how much things have changed is in 2014 the Abbott government secured the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and Xi Jinping addressed a joint sitting of the Australian Parliament and last year uh, China published its list of 14 grievances where it said uh, that we had to change various things about our domestic uh, legal system and political system uh, in order to get them to stop economically coercing us using their trade uh, leverage. So it really is a changing time and we have to change to respond to it.
0: Yeah, I remember being in um, Parliament uh, when the chapter was signed and there was you know a lot of backslapping a lot of cheer a lot of optimism and uh, you know who would have thought in very few years that things had completely and utterly changed but i think when we look back on the sort of long-term trajectory, it was all very foreseeable, wasn't mm. it?
1: Yeah, there's a really interesting debate in academic circles about whether or not Xi Jinping represents continuity or whether he represents change in the Chinese system. I think the best sources suggest that he is much more continuity than he is change, mm. and perhaps is an accelerant that has driven this, these changes faster and more aggressively, but they were always on this trajectory. Uh, Rush Doshi, who's a um, former academic, is now Joe Biden's uh, China advisor at the National Security Council has published a book called The Long Game uh, Mm. last year, which really sets this out very persuasively. And he goes back to the history of the phrase hide and bide, which was a philosophy first articulated by Deng Xiaoping. Um, And it's hide your talents and bide your time, which is essentially that China should uh, be meek and humble and not confront the world while it is weak, but when it becomes strong, it will be able to assert itself. And I think we should have known uh, as long as 40 years ago that that was a trajectory that China was on, and it's just manifesting the way it was always going to.
0: Yeah, I, I. I totally, totally agree and um, I I think we have been naive, unfortunately, in Australia and part of the problem has been, of course, we are a free country, we're a liberal democracy so we have been open yeah. and wanting to be open to our neighbours, our trading partners, to the diaspora that has moved here and, and that, is, that is what makes Australia the, the great country that it is. But it's also left us very, very um, open to being taken advantage of.
1: I think naive is the only fair description Mm. for Australian policy five to ten years ago uh, and before that. And it might have been naive with good intentions, uh, but it still has costs and consequences for our country. The one thing we can take pride upon, though, is that we have woken up to this challenge much earlier than most of the rest of the world has. And really we set out on a path five years ago to address the weaknesses that we have and to harden ourselves, particularly against these grey zone threats to our uh, sovereignty, things that fall short of the threshold of war but are still compromising, and that includes economic coercion and cyber attacks, but also espionage and foreign interference. We have really led the world, particularly the legislative powers that we've given our intelligence and security agencies to combat that, so much so that on my trip in the United Kingdom, they're very interested in knowing how they could essentially copy what we have done and how they could replicate what we've done, because they don't have the same powers and legal architecture that we've put in place, which has been quite successful in uh, confronting that threat,
0: yeah, indeed. Um, well, Tony Abbott described the relationship, as you, I'm sure, will <laughs> well remember, um, relationship with China as one of fear and greed. Um, it it makes me think too of the um, EU's relationship with Russia that mm. there has been a li- you know a little bit of fear, uh, probably not enough fear, um, but there's been a huge amount of greed when mm. it comes to using. Russian oil and um, energy exports and, of course, the investments that have come in mm-hmm. from all the, the oligarchs into the EU and and, and Britain as well. Um, it It's interesting to see those parallels. Of course, the EU and Britain haven't been touched as much as we have by China. Geography is... is First and foremost, the reason for that. But um, how do you see the the parallels mm. there with the um, what the EU is now experiencing with China? And I guess, I guess, sort of thinking about what Australia has experienced over the last few years, where we have been the victim of these trade embargoes by China as punishment for our response to mm. Chinese interference in Australia. Um, we've we've ended up saying, well, you know, we we maybe could just be a bit less greedy and put up with a bit of economic pain in order to stand for our principles. Is mm. that what we're seeing in in the EU and Britain?
1: Absolutely. I mean, they have had a dramatic wake-up call, even more dramatic than the wake-up calls that we have had because it's been kinetic, hard military conflict, not mm. just grey zone coercion. But mm. both of our systems have been jolted into accepting the reality of the environment that we're in that we probably should have recognised and adapted to earlier and could have seen the signs of but sometimes it requires dramatic events to get political change and Europe is going through nothing less than a massive sea change of security policy when you've got um, countries like Finland and Sweden joining uh, or applying to join NATO when you've got Germany announcing a doubling of its defence budget, when you have countries like Switzerland coming off the fence and no longer being neutral when it comes to applying sanctions these are massive changes and and I think really welcome ones. I mean, there's nothing positive about the conflict in Ukraine, but if there is any solace that we can take from it, it is that it has woken up uh, Europe in the same way Australia had on China. And it is now allowing them to understand better what we have been saying about China, and they mm. can now see the connections between Russia and China more clearly, and that actually what we're facing is a common challenge of authoritarianism and rising authoritarianism, and that we need to meet that challenge uh. Together and in a united way, and that's our best chance of prevailing. Because collectively, we actually exercise a lot of strength.
0: Absolutely. Well, not not just military strength, mm-hmm. economic strength. Uh, so, so James, this this idea that liberal democracies, because I think the use of the term West has its problems, mm-hmm. because we're talking about India, although mm-hmm. again some problems with Russia, um, but but liberal democracies confronting authoritarian regimes is this a new cold war do you think i mean it's been the debate of commentators and academics alike
1: yeah, history can be a bit of a straitjacket in that way. And if you say it is a new Cold War, then you it's a term which is laden with so much meaning and so much history, so it's not sure. a really a useful one. Other people have called it a hot piece as a kind of a, a variation of that in that um, you know, we are seeing almost what you would call um, proxy conflicts and proxy contests uh, around the world, not as direct as anything we saw in the Cold War like Vietnam or, or, or the Korean conflicts, but things which might amount to what is a pre-conflict period, what is amounting to be a conflict period, and and I'm referring obviously to the Solomon Islands in particular, Mm -hmm. where um, those who understand their history and understand the history of the war in the Pacific in particular will immediately recognise why it's detrimental to Australia's interest to have a permanent Chinese military presence uh, in the South Pacific. Um, We take very seriously the assurances that Prime Minister Sogavare has given us and the region and his own people um, that there will not be a formal Chinese military base or a permanent presence there, but that's clearly China's ambition and we have to be alert to that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It was uh, incredibly concerning to hear that news over the well over the last few days, but but the lead up to it as well. Um, just thinking about what's going on here in Australia domestically, and we're sitting here at Melbourne University you know, University campus. They've been uh, challenged over. The last few years, with um, allegations of of foreign interference and and the like, um, how, how do you see that particularly in mm-hmm. your, as chair of the Joint Committee on intelligence and security How do, how do you see that playing out on our campuses and what, what can we do about
1: it? Yeah. Well, happily, we have a plan. Um, The PJCS just concluded a report uh, a few weeks ago on the national security risks in higher education. We made 27 recommendations, both to universities and to the government, about things they need to do. And, frankly, they need to address what are systemic weaknesses and vulnerabilities that are some inherent in the nature of the university system, in their openness and their outward looking on the world, which we don't want to dissuade them from. That's important. But they have to be much more sophisticated and much more cynical, frankly, about some of their international engagement. That's both... Relates to their dependent on on international student income and the compromises that that has produced, but also their research cooperation arrangements with uh, universities in authoritarian political systems. And China is the biggest one um, that's relevant for the Australian university context. Some progress has been made over the last five years with universities' foreign interference task force, but the committee is concerned that not enough progress has been made and vulnerabilities remain, and that the universities need to do this not just because it's in the national interest and because it supports our national security, but because it's consistent with their values. They, they shouldn't allow their academics to be silenced out of fear of consequences of international student uh, income being lost. They shouldn't allow students to be spied upon and intimidated for being outspoken in class if they're an international student from China. They shouldn't allow Confucius institutes to intimidate people on campus and these are really important things which go to the core of it their identity as open institutions in the west
0: so picking up on your your comment about international universities being reliant on international students and that then compromising some of the decisions that they they make um do you think that uh the universities in australia need to reassess their business model i mean they've kind of been forced to with the covid19 pandemic mm. and basically in the international students disappeared overnight. Mm. Uh, And you can feel it here still on campus at Melbourne. Um, There's very few international students around compared to before and you query how many come mm-hmm. back and if they do come back they're not probably coming back from China
1: yeah <laughs> yes I do think the universities need to reassess their business model because they have made a series of choices over the last couple of decades that have brought them to this position and they could have made different choices in the past they many of them went very big and very um, made a very big bet on the international student market and many of them have you know built great buildings and taken out great loans and acquired masses of property and hired lots of staff based on that bet and there was risks always inherent in that bet. There are risks that are reputational and go to the university's reputation, but also their financial risks. That they are Some of them are exposed to just one or two um, destination markets, and that was an irresponsible thing for them to do, and they're going to have to unwind that and look for other ways to fund their research in particular. Um, That includes working more closely with the private sector and the commercial world as they do in other countries. That includes um, raising more money from their alumni and and generating endowments to support those things. It doesn't all have to be funded by students, and it doesn't all have to be funded by the government either. There's lots of options available.
0: universities well and 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 private the private sectors had to respond to i mean you think of companies like treasury wine estates yep. a huge a huge portion of their exports went to china stopped overnight with the mm. um the tariffs placed on australian bottled wine going into china they've had to find new markets and they've had to make very tough decisions and it's been a bad time for their sh- shareholders but their private company they well they're <laughs> Not yeah. a government-owned company; they're <laughs> publicly listed, but they 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 adjust. Uh, that's that's the grim reality of the times we live in.
1: Exactly right. Uh, Diversification is something that everyone has to do, whether they like it or not, in their own financial interests. And the government shouldn't have to force a university or any other institution to do that. Should they? Should see that is in their own interests.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's been a, a, a very tough lesson for the universities, and I mean, COVID nineteen notwithstanding, it's been a tough lesson. over... For the last few years that you do need to diversify your student numbers, but you also, I think, need to get back to the principle that these universities are Australian universities and they should be, first and foremost, therefore, Australian, the education of Australian young people. Mm. Um, that is
1: why we give universities billions of dollars in taxpayers' money. <laughs> that is their, the reason why we fund them.
0: And it's a, and it's a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing. We want an educated country. Mm. We want educated young people to go and do marvellous things, mm. but yeah. Let's hope that the Australian yeah. students come first. Yeah. <laughs> now, James, um, you were in London and mm. uh, New York and Washington DC the other day. In fact, I saw you mm. through the crowds <laughs> at the airport. Uh, we both we both made it overseas. I think for your first time it, since COVID, it was yeah, yeah, absolutely. very exciting to get back on a plane. Indeed. Um, but you were there uh, as part of a committee delegation to of AUKUS partners mm. um, to discuss this fantastic initiative that um, the government has been involved. in. Can you Can you tell me how AUKUS came about mm. and why it's so important?
1: Yeah, I mean, my view is that AUKUS is our most significant international security arrangement since ANZUS. It sits alongside an architecture of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing relationship, uh, the Quad uh, partnership, our, our bilateral uh, strategic partnership with ASEAN as a really significant foreign policy achievement um, of Australia. And I think it will go down as one of the this Prime Minister's greatest achievements in the same way that ANZUS goes down as one of the greatest achievements of Robert Menzies. Mm. Um, how it came about is that uh, the United States has never shared its sense- most sensitive nuclear propulsion technology with any other country in the world except Great Britain, which they did in 1958. Others have asked and have been told no in the past. Um, but our Prime Minister had the vision to seize the moment of the change strategic environment and seek this support through the UK and the United States, and they agreed because they recognised that in many ways... Australia is on the front line of the contest of this century, which will be won or lost in the Indo-Pacific. And what is at stake is nothing less than the future, that world that our children and grandchildren will inherit from us. Will they live in a free world as we have and will they enjoy prosperity and peace as we have? And in order for us to meet that challenge, we have to be equipped for it. We have to have the capability for it. And our objective is to deter conflict, to prevent it. And for deterrence, you need two things. You need capability and you need intent. And AUKUS delivers both, capability through the sensitive military technology will acquire, not just nuclear submarines, but a lot more in the short term with precision-guided munitions and hypersonic missiles and cyber warfare capabilities, quantum computing, AI, um, and eventually the submarines. That provides that capability, but it also is a signal of intent. It's a signal of commitment from the UK and the US to our security, and it's a signal of our commitment to defending our shared values and our shared interest in the region and upholding the sovereignty of all states, uh, whether they're part of AUKUS or the Quad or whether they're not.
0: And I think something that is perhaps lost in in some of the commentary on AUKUS is the importance of the UK and the US focusing on our region, mm-hmm. um, because we, without a strong, particularly US presence, we are left extremely exposed, and we can't rely on that necessarily. And you know, we've had we've had ANZUS uh, for now seventy one years mm-hmm. almost, and we have had a strong US presence in our region, but you know with ebbs and flows of what what is popular with the US public with mm. the the predilections of various US presidents how do we make sure that the US remains engaged and invested mm. in in our region in the yeah. Indo-Pacific not just in the the eastern pacific which is of course uh, mm. of interest to them but that is incredibly important i think from an australian strategic perspective is that we have not just the US but the UK reinvesting yeah big time yeah. in in our region
1: The the beautiful thing about AUKUS is that it both increases Australia's self-sufficiency and our ability to defend ourselves and incentivises our partners to continue to take an interest in the region and to support us. It means that if anything ever did happen that prevented them from coming to our aid, we would be better equipped to defend ourselves. But it also demonstrates to them why they should be invested in the region because they have good friends here who want to uphold the rules-based order that we've all prospered under. And it's not just Australia, it's Japan and South Korea and um, Singapore and India and others who are really invested in that, the Philippines. And uh, this is a real mechanism to deliver that US investment and long-term commitment. And it's a real signal from them that they intend to be a Pacific power for the long term, that they are not going to uh, abandon their interest in the Pacific. In fact, they're increasing it uh, under successive administrations. The Obama administration, the Trump administration and now the Biden administration have all had different but consistent uh, increased commitments to this region because they recognise that's where the contest is. So I'm, I'm very heartened by it and I think Australians should be comforted by it.
0: But how do you think uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed things from the U.S. perspective? Do you think that redirects U.S. attention back to mm. Europe mm. and away from the Indo-Pacific, mm. or or do you think the U.S. is is able to walk and chew gum at the same time? Because that it has been a criticism in the past. You know, there's yeah. been confrontations uh, in the Middle East. They forget South China Sea. They mm. allow. China on their watch to build up uh, military installations in the South China Sea. They they adopt a policy of strategic patience yeah. with North Korea and North Korea goes on to test ballistic missile mm-hmm. after ballistic missile, build up its nuclear program. So Ru- Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think serious Russia watches we're not surprised, but mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like the general sort of international community of, of you know geopolitical watchers were mm-hmm. a little bit taken aback and it certainly went against what a lot of the predictions were being made in January, early February. Um, are we going to see a US that steps a bit away from the Indo-Pacific because of that.
1: There's no doubt that uh, Russia is a very serious short and probably medium term distraction from the, for the US and that it does demand their attention because of their commitments under NATO to their partners which they take very seriously as they should. Um, but I'm hopeful uh, that it won't be a long term distraction for two reasons. One, Europe is stepping up in a way it never has before to meet its own security needs and the expansion of NATO and the increased investment of NATO partners in their own defence is a very welcome thing because that will take a load off the United States and it will allow Europe to have a more leading role in its own defence as it should. Um, And it's also um, brought uh, Europe's attention to the Indo-Pacific and and made them realise the way in which they have a really strong interest in our security as well. Um, But I think it's also worth remembering that in the scheme of things, you know, Russia has a similar GDP to Australia. Mm. It's a declining power, not a rising one. And I think everyone recognises that the long-term context is not going to be between the United States and Russia. It's going to be between the United States and all of its allies and China. And if China continues to have its aggressive posture towards the world, which we'd assume that it will um, under its leadership for some time, then that is where our attention needs to be. And that was a very consistent message we got while we are in the United States. It's also the message we got while we are in the United Kingdom. And there seems to be a pretty strong consensus being forged there in both countries across the aisle in a bipartisan way, and that's very welcome.
0: Well, that's interesting to hear that that was the reception you got in the UK because I certainly noticed when I was in in London watching the BBC, the coverage of, of Ukraine, it was just wall to wall. Uh, you know, nothing else was happening in the world except for Ukraine, which you know was appropriate. It's 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 very close geographically, and they would have, um, pretty significant people-to-people links. But um, it it is reassuring that there is not a, a diversion of mm. focus from the importance of the Indo-Pacific and the and the threat of authoritarian China. I wanted to ask though, James, um, about the. the ability of Australia and the UK and the US and and other partners to build support for taking a tougher stance against China's coercion Mm. amongst our our region, and Mm. in particular Southeast Asian and and South Pacific neighbours. There really has been a bit of neutrality or a bit of hedging, um, particularly in in ASEAN states. Mm. And I... You know, it, it troubles me how we, we're going to overcome that because I think it's all very well for the, Australia to join together with our natural partners, our traditional partners of the US and the UK, and it's great that we have the quad mm. starting to develop. It sort of it fits and starts um, with Japan and India as well. But... but Singapore, Malaysia, mm. Indonesia, particularly, how do we get countries like that to to understand the mm. the urgency and and imperative of of standing up to, to China's coercion.
1: I think a lot of those countries do understand that, but sometimes feel that they don't have enough options, enough choices available. And it's a task of us and our allies led by the United States to provide those options. And their options beyond security and, and diplomacy, but also economic engagement. Um, there's nothing that Southeast Asian nations would value more than better access to the US domestic market from a trade point of view. They have great US investment In their countries. Uh, They have very generous aid programs, they have great military engagement, but a missing piece of the puzzle is that economic engagement and we'd really welcome that and the um, Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership was one opportunity to do that and domestic politics in the US has kind of vetoed that, but we hope that there are other opportunities and the Biden administration is talking about other options to provide that for them because we don't want any country to feel that the only partner of choice for economic engagement and growth is China that would be a very bad thing and we believe leave what we say when we say that we believe in sovereignty and self-determination, unlike others who um, kind of pay lip service to that. We're genuine about it. It is up to them to choose the path for themselves. We just want to make sure that they have good options on the table that they can take up, and I'm confident that they will because ultimately I think countries want their sovereignty respected and they want to partner with countries that respect them genuinely and operate within a rule of law framework and are trusted and open and transparent. They don't want to be coerced by uh, a bully in the region and they will choose that if we provide it to them.
0: How do you think then it plays out in in the Pacific, particularly the South Mm. Pacific? It's where Australia is the... the you know, the key player yeah. we've taken a real um leadership role in terms of development assistance in mm-hmm. terms of security assistance when when countries have asked for it and the announcements over the last few days i mean penny wong uh, labor's spokesperson for foreign affairs has said it was the greatest foreign policy failure of um, an australian government since the second world war that mm. solomon island signed a security agreement with china i mean it's big, big call, big yeah. call. It's, it's I mean, a... we're in an election campaign. I yeah. appreciate that. It's
1: quite an irresponsible thing for Penny Wong to yeah. say. I don't know whether she's had uh, classified security briefings or not. Mm. If she has had classified security briefings about this, then she is knowingly speculating about highly sensitive matters publicly in a, mm. in a counterproductive way for electoral benefit. And if she hasn't had classified briefings, then she's um, wildly speculating about matters in which she's uninformed. And both of those are, are dangerous and reflect poorly on her and on the opposition, who are again seeking to politicise a national security and foreign policy issue when um, our government, if we ever criticise the Labor Party's past standing on China or national security, is told that we're not allowed to uh, politicise national security and, and foreign affairs. So uh, that rule has to apply to everyone or no one. Um, yeah, sure. uh, Look, it's a very serious challenge and, and we are working at it. And we have a, we've had very good coverage from an intelligence point of view about China's plans and intentions. We have known for some time that they wanted to do this, but the difficulty that we have is that they don't play by the same rules that we are. We are constrained by our values, by our commitment to the rule of law and the democracy, and there are things which they are prepared to do which we would never do um, and which we think in the long term are very harmful to their interests and harmful to the region, but in the short term it can allow them to have some successes like this.
0: It was interesting when I visited the Solomon Islands at the end of 2019, it was just before... The Solomon Islands government changed its recognition um, f- of China from Taiwan to um, to, to mainland China, to PRC, and there were protests at the airport mm. as as we arrived, as the flight from Brisbane arrived. Um, people holding up. Big placards saying they disagree with the mm. intentions of the government to, to change recognition. Uh, it's a hot issue mm. in Solomon Islands, which I, you know I don't think is is necessarily well understood no. in Australia. There's a complexity of views. They have their own really tricky domestic political environment, mm. um, and of course. As you say, China plays by very different rules from us mm. and they don't have the transparency and accountability that a liberal democracy expects. Uh, taxpayers expect of the money that is spent mm. in these countries and uh, it, I mean, it's just not Solomon Islands too, it's you know, partners throughout the exactly. Pacific. Exactly.
1: Uh, and, and China has done a very good job of cultivating the political class in a lot of these countries but actually is quite unpopular with the public in many of these countries and uh, that is a short-term political strategy because these countries have elections and can make choices about their own future and can um, uh, choose to vote for different governments with different policies if it's offered to them. So um, China's game, uh, the way they operate in the Pacific, I think will ultimately uh, be to their own detriment, but it may take some time for that to be revealed.
0: James, I wanted to shift our discussion to the Quad, Mm. uh, which has uh, been a long time coming and still probably hasn't quite come, but it it certainly... um Developed enormously since mm. it was first discussed in two thousand and six seven, uh, and then put into abeyance when the Rudd yes. government was elected. Uh, and I recall this intimately because I was serving as a diplomat in Japan mm. from twenty ten to twenty fourteen, and and particularly with the election of the Abe government at the end of twenty twelve. This is Abe two point zero. He'd been a real sort of promoter of of the quad, the um mm. the security diamond um of of democracies. It's come into its own, but it's got its real challenges, doesn't it?
1: yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. i mean it's it is an evolving Uh, body and it was wonderful that it was revived a few years ago at the foreign ministers level and even better that it was upgraded recently to a leaders level dialogue and has now met a couple of times including in person which is quite a feat in a COVID pandemic and another in-person meeting scheduled in Japan for just after our election and that's a really positive thing but uh, uh, real damage was done by the Rudd government's decision to walk away from it. Um, As you know it was deeply disappointing to India and Japan in particular and a lot of trust has had to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last few years, India has invited Australia again to participate in the Malabar uh, Navy exercises, which is a really significant uh, gesture, and we're working very well together. There is obviously a, a difference of opinion between India and Australia on when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, but we understand their perspective and we understand the unique history and the unique relationship that they have with Russia. Um, and, the, and the Quad is really a, a dialogue which is focused on the Indo-Pacific. It is not a global uh, security discussion forum. It is a Indo-Pacific Forum. And on those issues, there really isn't a cigarette paper of difference separating us from India, Japan or the United States. And the meeting held in Melbourne just a few months ago um, between the foreign ministers uh, was extremely convivial and and there's a high level of agreement. And it was a real gesture um, of significance that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, um, came out to Australia for that dialogue in the lead up to the conflict of Ukraine and then went to Fiji on the way afterwards, on his way home, and the first uh, Secretary of State to visit the Pacific and Sometimes, so uh, there is real buy-in and real commitment from the highest levels, and it's developing in a very positive way.
0: That's good to hear, um, and it's good to hear you think that the uh, Indian government's stance on Russia over the Ukraine crisis is not an insurmountable challenge to to the success of the Quad. what do you think of um, ideas like that mooted by boris johnson of a of a d twenty one i think it is mm. a, a grouping of twenty one democratic countries joe biden of president biden had his summit of democracies mm. a little while back that that idea of of building a a, a coalition mm. or a, or an alliance or sort of quasi alliance of democracies yeah um i mean it sounds it sounds pretty Pretty appealing to me, but um, it's it's tough when you've got the complexities of history yes. of the of the overlay of um, you know non-aligned movements, yes. post-colonial countries throughout our, our Indo-Pacific. How do, we, how do we build on that idea or is it not worth it?
1: Well, I'm strongly supportive of closer coordination and cooperation from liberal democracies. I think there's much to be gained from that and I know that our adversaries fear our ability to coordinate and work together and I know they have been surprised at how successful we have been in response to Russia in the way in which we've moved in such a, a united and a rapid fashion to impose costs on Russia in terms of uh, sanctions. That's been a really um, a, a big surprise, I think, even to us as well as to our adversaries. The only subtlety or nuance I would add to that is that um, Australia is in a region where there are many countries who we have to work with who are not democracies mm. but who actually do have a shared interest in upholding uh, the sovereignty of states and self-determination and we have to be willing and prepared to work with those states even if they're not a perfect reflection of our values in terms of their own domestic situation. They can be quite important partners and um, and we, we don't have any ideological, filterological test that we apply to working with someone um, if we have shared interests we're happy to be pragmatic and work together.
0: And that's very Menzian, actually. His mm. foreign policy was was first and foremost about interests. Mm. Um, and uh, I always reflect on on you know the great speeches of our time of, of of world leaders, leaders of the the free world. They they put a lot of emphasis in their speeches on on values, but the mm. actions are are about. Fundamentally about interests. And you're, you're, you know, who was it who said, our interests are our values and our values? John McCain, John McCain, God rest his soul, um, said, our interests are our values and our values are our interests. It's true, it's true, but um, I think when we, and I was having a, a a discussion with um, a former uh, head of O&A, as it mm. then was, uh, Richard Maud, the mm. other day, and he was talking about when you go to Southeast Asia, it's better to talk about principles, shared mm. principles, mm. rather than shared values because shared values starts to sound a little bit like you know the type of thing that the, the US, the UK and mm. Australia talk about. Mm. What do you think about articulating think- things in terms of principles yeah. and, and interests and...
1: I think Richard's absolutely right about yep. that, and we're not a country that seeks to impose our values on others. Certainly not by force. We don't have the capacity to, nor the desire to, and we are genuinely willing to work with people even across differences. Um, I think we've even demonstrated in the context of Australia's relationship with China. I mean, we know that China is not a democracy, and we know that it has a poor human rights record. But that didn't stop us achieving uh, chafta What has changed is China's approach to Australia, and we, that can't be ignored. And nor can they, nor can we ignore what they've done in the South China Sea, nor should we ignore what they do in Hong Kong, or their threats towards Taiwan, because they are very ominous indications of the direction that they're heading in and the way in which they will impact on our interests as well as our values.
0: On Taiwan, James, and I think this is a, a good note to, to finish on, um how do you see australia's role in any confrontation that mm. may occur on mm. taiwan it's I mean, it's an incredibly difficult question it's mm. totally hypothetical so i'm not yeah. going to hold you to this, but we are talking about uh, a separate nation mm. not not of course recognized by the united nations as as a as a state um, people who identify as an independent nation being taken over potentially by the p r c mm does Australia stand by and let it happen? We obviously are seeking to prevent it getting to that stage. But, you know, that's also putting Australia... Yeah. Like like NATO is having this very, very, very big decision over what to do on Ukraine. You know, mm. how far does Australia go to, to defend another country's interests when mm. its own direct interests aren't affected? Mm. Or is it about preventing uh, a domino mm. effect...?
1: So very shortly after I was first elected, I visited Taiwan as part of a delegation. I met the President Tsai Ing-wen, who's still the president today, a very impressive lady and a great leader. And I think there's a lot of commonality of interests and values with Taiwan. It's a liberal democracy island nation with mid twenty million population, as we are in the Pacific. And uh, I think our interests are very intimately tied to theirs. I think it's critical that any resolution of cross straits tension is done peacefully, and that any um, military attempt to change the status quo should be resisted, um, because it would have a massive destabilizing effect for the whole region. Uh, for japan for australia for the philippines for vietnam singapore many others uh, and many would not welcome that and i think the self-determination of the taiwanese people has to be put at the heart of that resolution they are a liberal democracy and they can and should choose uh, their own future and they shouldn't be coerced into accepting a future that they don't want and my read of it is they are more determined than ever before to assert that uh, and to control that and so they should and so should we support them in that and um, really do everything we can to deter China from trying to resolve this by military means.
0: It's pretty depressing though when you see how things unfolded in hong kong uh there was an attempt by the hong kong well quite a few of the hong kong people to stand up to china changing the status quo there and introducing its national security law and the like imposing its will on the hong kong people way before its treaty obligations Mm. allowed it to uh we we let it. We didn't yeah. do anything. We course, we put out some press releases. Mm. There were no sanctions against China, no. as far as I recall. I mean, we've made a bit more of an effort against Russia when it's in, with its invasion of Ukraine, and appreciate Hong Kong's place mm. in, sort of, um, in international law is different from the Ukraine. But you now we're taking slightly inconsistent approaches. You know, as a watcher of these things, I you know I wonder how does it play out then when it comes to Taiwan, which Mm. also has its own unique history in relation to to China, like Hong Kong. Yeah,
1: you're right, and I am concerned that the lesson that China has taken out of Hong Kong is the wrong one, which is that the West would not resist in the event of uh, invasion of Taiwan. Um, They should know, as we do, that the policy of the United States government is strategic ambiguity, which is deliberately designed to deter them from resolving that militarily, and I think it would be an enormous mistake for them to believe that the United States is not serious about that. It goes back to the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979 passed by Congress. There's very strong support for Taiwan in the administration and in the Congress in the US. And uh, it would be very dangerous of China to make an assumption that the US is not serious about it. They have never taken the military option off the table in relation to Taiwan, whereas they did. Cl- they clearly it was never on the table in relation to Hong Kong, no. and they clearly took it off the table in relation to Ukraine. It's notable that they did so for Ukraine, but have not done so for Taiwan. And I hope China heeds that message.
0: Well, I hope for the the people of Taiwan that it does too, um, because they certainly have dropped any. Pr- the PRC has dropped any pretense of um, a charm offensive with Taiwan. That uh...
1: mm. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> In the we're, era we're... of Wolf Warrior diplomacy, <laughs> there's not much charm at all coming <laughs> no, out of the no. Ministry the tra- of Foreign Affairs. The charmless
0: offensive at the, the moment, I yeah. think. Oh, well, James Patterson, thank you so much for your time today on the Afternoon Light podcast. It's been an absolute delight uh, to talk about your work on the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, on AUKUS, the Quad, and all the... The geopolitical challenges of our time of which there are so very many and i appreciate you taking the time during your election campaign too it's uh, a great pleasure thank you for having yeah.
1: me georgiana i really appreciate it
0: the afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the robert menzies institute at the university of melbourne you can find more about the institute and our podcast at robert We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.